Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a senior fellow here at the King's Fund, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Today, we're sitting down with just one guest to explore their leadership role and the ins and outs of their career journey. And that guest is Prana Issa, who is Chief People Officer for the NHS. Prana, welcome to the podcast. We're really honoured to have you with us today. It's my pleasure, Helen. Thank you for having me. And can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? So who I am, what I do, that would take a long time, but I'll I'll try to summarize. I grew up in India, and uh, both my parents were in public service. They both joined the civil service when they were fairly young, and then they worked hard to make life better for people of India for their entire career. And a lot of our dinner table conversations were about the work that they were doing. So for instance, my mother ran the largest midday meal scheme in the world. And I remember her discussing how to get food to tens of millions of children every day in schools that didn't have anything else to eat. And that really helped me to see the kind of inequality there is in the world and what can be done about it. So that arc of how can we make this world a better place for everyone mm-hmm. has really been a part of my my DNA and my growing up. And then I studied to be a psychologist and okay. then did a business degree and joined Unilever. And 15 years with Unilever in, in different countries. And then I joined the United Nations uh, in the humanitarian side of the UN. And that was for six years. And then five months ago, joined this amazing enterprise and this amazing idea called the NHS. Fantastic. And obviously you started the role in April, so you're still pretty new. How does it feel? Well, it, it feels great. And I think, you know, when people ask me, are you, are you settled in? Yeah. And I, I say, well, it feels like five minutes, actually, the, <laughs> the five months. And it's been amazing and intense and very, very inspiring. So the people that I've met, especially on the front line, but everywhere are just so passionate and committed to providing the best care for for patients. Fantastic. So just rewinding a bit, you've worked all over the world, but what drew you to working in the NHS? I get asked this a lot and I thought about it a lot. So I I can share, you know, what that thinking and feeling process was because it wasn't entirely, it was head and heart and gut as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a combination of the journey of my life and my work and my family, including my children, and um, and what the NHS is trying to do at this moment. I think if we look, when we look back 15 years later, this year and the next three or four years will be really defining years for the NHS. It's a big opportunity to make a change, to continue to evolve and respond to some of the challenges, uh, healthcare challenges that everybody in the world is facing, but that the NHS has been addressing, you know, for a long time. So it was the desire to make a difference at scale. That's one of the things that I, from the country that I grew up in uh, and the work that my parents did, it was about how to make the biggest difference you possibly can. And so I have a sense of kind of urgency about how much time do I have? And I'm not sick or anything, but I just share that because, well, my father passed away five years ago and I always had a sense of impatience about making things better. So why should it take 50 years? Why can it not be 10? You know, that kind of question. But after he passed away and I had this real up-close experience of how short life is, he was fairly young, and then saying, okay, so what? how do I make the most of the energy and the time that I have? 
and so the this role and i got the call from the headhunter i had never spoken to the this headhunter before and so it was really out of the blue and uh, i was driving mm-hmm. and she said you know I, i wanted your email address to send your job specification and i said what's the role and she, and she said it's the chief people officer for and then there was like this pause and i could <laughs> almost hear the drum roll like da 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 um the national health service and i just i remember saying okay can you give me a second and i pulled over and then i had a conversation about the role and i thought well i would learn a lot and i would also be able to make a contribution i have friends who are nurses and i have friends who a friend who is a gp a very close friend so i i had my focus group with them and um <laughs> understood what some of their issues are and and just was so inspired by what they do and then i watched some videos you know dispatches and youtube videos of people doing you know emergency care and pediatricians and at the end of one of them i just wept because there was this doctor who was from outside the uk and he had just finished a shift where he said he had to tell three people that their family member didn't make it in the emergency room and then he just sat down and he just wept and he said you know i this is the hardest thing mm-hmm. is when i can't actually save the person i want to you know i i want to save which is everybody but his humanity and his compassion and and his skill mm-hmm. you know and and resilience I, i just yeah so i i wept along with him he he will never know me but i i was very moved by seeing his work and it sounds like you feel a huge sense of responsibility in terms of making change in the world i do i think it comes from again where i grew up and having the privilege of a good education mm-hmm. privilege comes in different ways um and so it was we were not wealthy at all but we had uh, i had a great education and i had parents who who said well, we're very lucky to um to have what we have and what are you going to do about it and uh, this is the this is the message i say to my kids yeah. um we can't wait for somebody else to solve what we think is wrong we have if we can't do it with all of the advantages of education and yeah. and others then who then who is going to do it so a real sense of responsibility i i spent some time trying to articulate what my purpose is uh, what brings me to work every day and it's it's to make a positive change um in the world to be a catalyst yeah. for positive change in the world especially for those most excluded mm-hmm. and that comes out of some personal experiences uh one of the things that really drives me to um to do things is a real desire to shift the inequality in the world yeah. and whether that's inequality for women for people of ethnic minorities or people from the lgbt q community it's that exclusion and the impact that has and yeah. and the unfairness of course and the injustice of it that really drives me obviously thinking about the other sectors that you've worked in what are the key differences or similarities that you see when you compare those different sectors So the similarity is that um well definitely between the humanitarian sector and the NHS I would say the similarity is making a difference to people's lives every single day mm. and um saving lives and that's a similarity as I mentioned earlier we all at the heart of it want to do a great job every day we mm-hmm. want to be able to fulfill our purpose we want to do a job where we are valued and included and heard where we can make changes for the better mm. and that's the same no matter where you work um the difference is in in degrees i think in the nhs i'm just amazed at the complexity of work that people have to 
perform. Yeah. It's just, I mean, yeah, just the variables, the the constraints, the complexity of healthcare and long-term healthcare yeah. is incredible. And people just, I think they don't even realize what an incredible job they're doing compared to so many other mm. sectors, you know, which are much more, I think profit is a very simplifying objective. I'm not knocking it, but it definitely is less complex yeah. than saying, how do we provide health outcomes to a, a population, you know, the, the city of greater Manchester or um, rural Norfolk, and that's what they're doing, which is very different from yeah. any other sector. Um, I would say public scrutiny as well is very different from any other sector. In so, terms of higher public yes, scrutiny. Higher yeah. and also more unforgiving in yeah. some way, which I was surprised and, and I'm, I am saddened by it. And, yeah. you know, when I see it in the newspaper, when I see that when things go right and they, they don't go right easily. I mean, people, lots of people in lots of teams have worked together to make sure that things have gone right. Yeah. And um, it's by no means inevitable that they've gone right. But that doesn't get as no. much or if, you know, maybe no attention yeah. in the in the in the public domain. I think people talk about their stories in more family community terms. But, you know, in the in the public domain, I just don't hear it. And so when it's the negative scrutiny, I just feel that it's quite unfair. Yeah. Um, I, I understand because there's that balance with accountability. We are providing a public good. We are providing healthcare um, to an entire country and, and yeah. absolutely be accountable. But that balance, I think, could shift a little bit to having um, rec to, to recognizing when lots of times things are going right as well. And do you think that scrutiny has an impact in terms of making people feel anxious about trying new things and making change happen? I, I think that's quite natural and, and human. Yeah. And it's what I've been told, not only by, let's say, leaders in, in um, provider organizations or systems, but also the, the nurse on a ward who says, you know, I, I work for 12 hours and I provide my community the the best of my energy mm. and, and skills. And then I go home and on the news, I see that everything everybody's talking about the NHS is where we failed and, um, and that she feels very bad about it. So how can we support people who are working every day to make that healthcare possible while also holding ourselves accountable? And yeah. so that's actually, I think that's my question back, you know, to um, to people who would listen to this podcast to say, you know, I would love to hear thoughts on how we can achieve that balance um, in, a, in a way that supports our staff. Listeners, that is a challenge from Prerna. So please contribute your ideas. Um, you have a Twitter account, in fact, don't I, you? So, I do. So people can message you there. That would be great. And just moving on to workforce and the people plan, I know that a key part of your role is to ensure that the NHS has enough staff so it can deliver that high quality care to patients and improve services in line with the NHS long term plan. We've written a lot at the King's Fund about the extensive staff shortages across the service. What's the scale of the challenge the NHS is currently facing? So the, the scale of the challenge is across multiple variables or multiple fronts. There is a challenge on, and you said the number of staff, so there's mm. definitely a challenge on having the right number of people yeah. in the right places. Because if you overlay the 
let's say the vacancy numbers mm-hmm. there's then the you know which geographical areas in the country yeah. because it's not you know you know uniform, uniform. Mm-hmm. it's also which service priorities mm-hmm. because if you take community nursing or you take mental health or some of the cancer specialties then there are differences in availability of staff and and skills but there's also the the skills and the uh, multidisciplinary nature of the work that's mm-hmm. shifting so the scale of the challenge i would say is having the right culture a culture where we can make sure that people have the space and uh, the ability to speak up when they need to especially about patient outcomes mm-hmm. where they get the development and career progression that they want and where there's a sense of belonging to yeah. the team that they work in where they have the leadership that really helps deliver the outcomes and then the whole piece about number and skills of staff and that yeah. combination that i just spoke about so the workforce redesign and workforce supply aspects of the people plan are absolutely key so yeah. whether it's number of gps uh, whether it's the nurse clinical placements mm-hmm. and others there's a real um, focus and challenge there retention is also an issue because Absolutely. it's not only bringing people the right people into the door but it's also how we are able to retain them we have we do have attrition you know more attrition than we should um and then uh, the last piece is the new operating model with the system uh, icss and system mm-hmm. uh, uh, integrated care systems and what workforce implications exist for working across different entities whether it's local government social care and yeah. healthcare so that's the scale of the challenge it's easier to sometimes mention vacancy numbers but behind that is a, a lot of complexity yeah. in terms of how we can make sure that we have them in the right place that with their their supported valued and able to deliver the care that we all want and in terms of the scale of this challenge in the multiple domains you just set out as well as it being motivating is it also a little bit daunting absolutely it's <laughs> it's daunting every day um and i i don't say that lightly because what that means is that you know the the fact that no other country has attempted a workforce strategy of this scale it means that there's no model there's no manual there's no uh, other example that we can say well we can do it better than that or we yeah. can take some elements learn from that and add our own we will be the pioneer yeah. we are the pioneer we were the pioneer with the long term plan and we are the pioneer with the workforce strategy how can we make sure that everybody who has um either an impact on the workforce or is impacted by the workforce has knowledge about it yeah. is involved in yeah. creating this plan what's daunting is that um the scale of the challenge as we just discussed mm. it it means that we need to manage expectations about the time in which this needs this can be addressed yeah. issues that are decades in the ma- making don't get fixed a year or two in you know you need to have the patience and the consistency yeah. to um to create a sequence of interventions and changes that build on each mm. other all our work streams are mutually reinforcing mm. so we will be moving a massive system and and using every lever to do that um exciting and daunting and so you delivered the interim people plan back in june and i wanted to ask are we still on track to see the final people plan published at the end of this year because obviously we've just had a one year spending round so you didn't get the multi year spending review we were hoping for that would have enabled you to plan for increased training places over the next few years but are we still looking at end of the year for that people plan so first i just want to um, acknowledge and recognize the great work that julian hartley led on the interim people yeah. plan that was dido david behan and, and julian what that meant was that we have a really good framework and key priorities that mm-hmm. were done as part of the interim people plan 
a multi-year spending review is what we were hoping for. And that was the commitment saying after a comprehensive spending review, two months later, we would publish a yep. people plan. That hasn't happened. We still are going to publish a full people plan um, before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. The difference will be that it will need to be refreshed as we uh, get more clarity on what the resourcing and funding um, opportunities will be going forward. So we will still be putting forward priorities. The challenge will be that we won't have clarity on the funding for a while. But, you know, there is a silver lining. There's always an upside as well, which is that this will mean that it, it is a dynamic document. It is a dynamic strategy. And we can keep updating and refreshing it in line with the changes in the context. So lots of our work at the King's Fund focuses on the need to make the NHS a more compassionate, diverse and inclusive workplace. And we also hear that in some parts of the system, there are some more difficult cultures. So as someone who's still relatively new to the NHS, what's been your experience of the culture in the NHS so far? And I know it's, you know, it will be uh, multifaceted in terms of, you know, the NHS is not really just one thing. But yeah, give me some of your early impressions. I have seen the best in the world culture within the NHS in several places. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, people who are incredible leaders at every level. So the ward sister and CEO and the porter, they're all leaders because they are creating outcomes and they're bringing people along with them. I'm absolutely impressed and amazed and inspired. And I've learned, you know, I'm learning a lot. I've also unfortunately been, you know, been to a few places where it's a very difficult place to work. And if, you know, I just thought if I'm going to come into this organization every day, it would be very difficult to make a difference. So I guess, you know, one reflection is if everybody was moving towards the places, uh, what they do, which are the best in the world in, in the NHS, that would be transformational, absolutely transformational. So the, the question is, so why is that not happening? And of course, leadership is a key element of that. Sometimes I've se- in, in this short time, I've seen that the primacy of patients is leading to compromises on staff care and you know, time and, and energy for investing in staff. And it can't be an either or because patient outcomes absolutely depend on how staff are doing yeah, and feeling. And there's evidence to show that. Absolutely, right? yeah. absolutely. So this this dichotomy in, in some people's minds about, well, if I, you know, I don't have time yeah. to talk to my staff or I don't have time to listen to, to my staff because I'm so busy providing care to patients. One of, one of my questions um, is how do we shift that? How do we help people mm-hmm. shift that? The other reflection is that there are just incredible examples of even in places which are very difficult and cultures which are difficult, people are doing incredible things. And um, how can we celebrate a bit more mm-hmm. to share, you know, that this is what good looks like. And there are heroes every day. And yeah. what can we do about that? But I mean, I, the word heroes makes it sound like I believe in heroic le- leadership. I don't. Mm-hmm. But actually, everybody who is experiencing something difficult and still providing amazing care, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's what we should celebrate. And the last thing on, on this reflection is somehow people issues ha- are, are a distant third to finance and, and quality mm-hmm. in some of the places where the culture isn't yeah. right. And we have to shift that. Yeah. Uh, people issues should be absolutely on par with finance and quality because they're completely interlinked yeah. and interdependent. And what about the culture in the national bodies where you're working? 
So I think there's things, there's a lot of reflection that we need to do in, in and there is reflection in the national bodies. There is a new exec team. Uh, yeah. Many members are new in that team. And I see a change in conversation even in the five months that I've been there from being more uh, regulatory to being more enabling and focused on improvement mm -hmm. and improvement as a culture. So there are definitely changes we need to make at the at the national level. And I'm really quite hopeful that all of the ingredients are there to make it happen. Um, but I would say that we have some work to do. And I saw you say somewhere previously that the humanitarian sector used to have quite a problem with a macho culture, but that real improvements were made when more women were put in senior roles. How important is it that we see more of that change happen at the top of the NHS, not just in terms of gender, but also very importantly, ethnicity? It's absolutely critical, absolutely critical. And I have spent a lot of time in the last five months thinking about this and, and talking to people about this. And my question was, when there is a lot of conversation about you know, how leadership needs to look different and be different, why have we not made more progress? Why have we not made faster progress? I'm definitely impatient on women in leadership and more diverse and ethnically diverse leadership. I can see a couple of reasons why uh, and some of the obstacles mm -hmm. and uh, our accountability framework yeah. in terms of appointments is one yeah. for sure. And the other is that some of our processes haven't really been thoughtfully created to create a different outcome. Yeah. So we can't run the same process and expect a different outcome. Yeah. And I've myself experienced where if we make some changes, we, we can if you know make it a much more equal uh, playing field than we have in the past. But it's just, it's just not acceptable mm -hmm. that um, the top of the organization looks like it does. And there, there are more and more people who believe that yeah. to be true so yeah. it's uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic and and uh, I think people will have to bear with me because I'm going to be beating this drum very loudly I'm sure people will be very happy to hear that so I wanted to ask you about who has inspired you as you've been growing as a leader well I think the key inspiration has been from my parents mm -hmm. and uh, especially my mother because she was in a role that was very unusual for women to take up uh, yeah. when she did and I saw her not letting expectations of society and social norms stand in the way of her sense of mission and her sense of making a difference. There is a cost to that and I saw that as well. So you are there's a lot of evaluation of you mm -hmm. there you're judged uh, you might be excluded mm -hmm. because you're not really adhering to what other people's expectations are uh, of course the guilt of being a working woman working mother and so you know she always made it a point to never miss a sports day or or our um, you know performances so there there is a cost to it and so she has been a role model and an inspiration and what i've tried to do is be thoughtful and intentional about the trade-offs mm -hmm. that I need to make. So it can't be that I want to be a working mother, but also then be able to do everything that, you know, some somebody else who wasn't working is doing. Yeah. And I have to give up on some things that I might like to do. Also that what what are the positives I can offer to my children because I'm working? Because otherwise you can feel that it's a, they're just uh, missing out on um, you know, and their mother being around. Mm -hmm. And I saw how she handled that. So a key thread is, you know, how um, how she navigated her career and her sense of mission with expectations from yeah. uh, different roles. Other inspiration for my leadership journey is really seeing 
what roles and you know i'm still figuring it out and i will continue to do that as i go forward what roles and what platforms will be the best for me to make the biggest difference mm-hmm. and one of the attractions of the nhs role is the scale is incredible because i was asked you know will you not miss having a global impact and this is a national role yeah but actually healthcare and climate change are the two biggest challenges facing Absolutely. our planet and to be involved in an endeavor and i call it an endeavor and an idea i like the nhs because there's very few words can really mm. encapsulate the amazingness of um, of the nhs it's you a know, mission isn't it I, yes a, yeah. it is a mission and um, to be engaged in that scale and be able to make a, a difference that inspires me and that informs my leadership journey so I don't think of it I don't think of my leadership journey well as a as a snapshot or episodic kind mm-hmm. of thought it really is an arc and it went it went very differently from where I thought it would go I if you had asked me 20 years ago if I would be doing this role you know in the UK I I would say no not really 20 years ago I was you know in in India and I was the head of HR for a large in Unilever for a large part of the sales organization mm-hmm. and I always thought one day i i am going to be in public service but i just wasn't specific about it so one more thing i'll say before i i hand back to you is when i started giving voice to how i wanted to make the world better mm-hmm. and i i when i first said it i thought well who am i to make the world better the world you know that's huge and over the years i have come to the conclusion who am i not to make the world a better place and then i discovered this amazing poem by marian williamson which is nelson mandela's one of his favorite poems and she says you know who are you not to shine and so then i started giving voice to my vision and my dream and you know and i thought well if somebody laughs at it and says well you you're too big for your boots to think about changing the world that's fine but when i gave voice to it i realized actually i have a role i ha- i have my part to play mm-hmm. and i want to carve out space where i can do that every single day not in my spare time yeah and that's when i changed and also my daughter when she was 3 she just asked me you know what is it that you do mama that's more important than me <laughs> and that you know she had moved on from the you don't pick me up from school you know she she went to the heart of the issue yeah. and i said oh, oh actually i i don't do anything that's more important than you and at that point i was working in in the private sector in in unilever which is a wonderful company but i thought well this is the time that i sh- i should really bring my values and my everyday work much closer together and the last well i already said this is the last point but another point that i want to share Go is ahead. that at times where my values have been incongruent with my workplace mm-hmm. or with the values of the workplace has been one of the most difficult times of my career and um to first recognize that there's an incongruence and a dissonance between my values and the values of the workplace then to see what do i want to do about it and then to to do something there's usually a cost yeah. when you do um to be ready to take that cost and you know and then to either move on or um or change the the values of the workplace so i have i've had several experiences of doing that So I think leadership without risk mm-hmm. is not really leadership um and you need to have your support around you as well and allies who believe in what the direction in which you want to take the organization. I'm thinking about people who are very early on in their career or earlier on and um have that sense of mission and want to change the world. What tips would you give them? First of all I'll say the grown-ups don't know everything. 
So, you know, don't imagine that your views are less important or less informed mm -hmm. or less valuable than people who've been running things for a long time. So just you have equal validity for your mission and vision. In fact, more because you are inheriting this this planet and this world. So that's one. The second is talk about your dream as much as you possibly can. Make it real. Mm -hmm. Tell lots of people about it. And then you'll find that actually there are loads of people who want the same thing. They want to join um, and want to collaborate with you and have ideas that can help you make your vision a reality. Um, I think each each person with a dream has to have a bit of an activist inside and we do but we just shouldn't we just shouldn't silence that activist so if at first you feel people aren't supportive or actually are trying to shut you down mm. i mean expect it because you're trying to make a change mm. and um, and for some people that might be scary so how can you bring them along how can you refine your message in a way that includes people mm. um, and then also there are lots of older people who have a vision and a mission and have energy and are activists so look, search them out because they have the experience of what worked and what didn't. Yeah. And they're looking for people who have that um, that energy that young people bring. And so, optimism. And, and optimism. Yeah. And to bring these two things together, experience, experienced vision yeah. and energetic vision, you know, that's the, uh, that'll be incredible. And it is incredible. Um, so final question from me. What does success look like for you in this world? I think that question needs to be answered by other people mm -hmm. because this role is, it's a leadership role, but it's leadership in the service of the National Health Service. Yeah. So I talk a lot to people who are operational leaders at all levels to ask them what would make a difference to them. And my effort is every day. So success would look like my efforts on a daily basis, having a line of sight and being connected to making things better mm -hmm. for people on the front line. And whether that's, you know, and, and there's a real agenda for that, which is on workforce, on staff, on culture, on uh, creating, you know, more diverse leadership cadre. So th there are very specific work streams even that yeah. connect my work to the front line. But that is what success looks like for me. And the second element would be to have the people agenda and workforce and culture be at the top of everyone's, uh, every leader's agenda. Well, thank you so much, Prana, for being with us today. I feel so privileged to have spent this time with you. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Well, that's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks, as always, to our podcast team. I'm Helen McKenna and our producers are Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. We'd really love to know what you think and what you'd like to hear more about. So please tell us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Or of course, get in touch either on Twitter at The Kings Fund or my account at Helena Macarena. We hope you can join us next time.